Section 15 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cindy Henkin. Chicago, HenkinVO.com. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha Von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 4, Part 5. Several days passed without me seeing Tilling again. Every evening I went to the theater, and from thence to a party, expecting and hoping to meet him, but in vain. My reception day brought me many visitors, but, of course, not him. But I did not expect him. It was not like, after his decisive, that you must really not expect from me, Countess, and he's saying at the carriage door in so hurt a manner, I understand, that not at all. To present himself, after all, at my house on a day of the kind. I had offended him that evening, that was certain, and he avoided meeting me again, that was clear. Only, what could I do? I was all on fire to see him again, to make amends for my rudeness on the former occasion, and to get another hour of talk such as I had had at my father's, an hour's talk to the light of which would now be increased to me a hundredfold by the consciousness which now had become plain to me of my love. In default of Tilling, the following Saturday brought me at least Tilling's cousin, the lady at whose ball I had made his acquaintance. On her entrance my heart began to beat, now I could at least learn something about the man who gave me so much to think about. Still, I could not bring myself to put a direct question to this effect. I felt that I was not in a condition to speak out his very name without blushing so as to betray myself. And therefore, I talked to my visitor about a hundred different things, even the weather amongst the rest, but avoided the very topic which lay at my heart. Oh, Martha! she said without any preparation, I have a message to give you. My cousin Frederick begs to be remembered to you. He went away the day before yesterday. I felt the blood desert my cheeks. Went away? Where? Is his regiment moved? No, but he has taken a short leave of absence to hurry off to Berlin where his mother is on her deathbed. Poor fellow. I am sorry for him, for I know how he adores his mother. Two days afterward, I received a letter in a hand I did not know, with a postmark of Berlin. Even before I saw the signature, I knew that the letter was Tilling's. It ran thus. 8 Friedrich Street, March 30th. 1863, 1 a.m. Dear Countess, I must tell my grief to someone, but why to you? Have I any right to do so? No, but I have an irresistible impulse. You will feel with me. I know you will. If you had known her who is dying, you would have loved her. That soft heart that clear intellect, that joyous temper, all her dignity and worth, all is now destined for the grave. 
no hope. I have spent the entire day at her bedside, and I'm going to spend the night also up here. Her last night. She has suffered much, poor thing. Now she is quiet. Her powers are failing. Her pulse is already almost stopped. Besides me, there are watching in her room, her sister and a physician. Ah, this terrible separation. Death. One knows, it is true, that it must happen to everyone. And yet one cannot rightly take it in that it may reach those whom we love also. What this mother of mine was to me, I cannot tell you. She knows that she is dying. When I arrived here this morning, she received me with an exclamation of joy. So that is you. I see you once more, my Fritz. I did so fear that you would come too late. You will get well again, mother, I cried. No, no, there is nothing to say about that, my dear boy. Do not profane our last time together with the usual old sickbed consolations. Let us bid each other goodbye. I fell sobbing on my knees at the bedside. You are crying, Fritz. Look, I am not going to say to you the usual, do not weep. I am glad that your parting from your best and oldest friend gives you pain. That assures me that I shall live long in your remembrance. Remember that you have given me much joy. Except the anxiety which the illnesses of your childhood caused, and the torture when you were on campaign, you have given me none but happy feelings, and have helped me to bear every sadness which my lot has laid on me. I bless you for it, my child, and now another attack of her pain came on. It was heart-rendering to see how she cried and groaned. How her features were distorted. Yes, death is a fearful, cruel enemy. And the sight of this agony called back to my recollection all the agonies which I had witnessed on battlefields and in the hospitals when I think that we men sometimes hound each other on to death, gratuitously and cheerfully, that we expect youth, in the fullness of its strength, to offer itself willingly to this enemy, against whom every weary and broken old age yet fights desperately. It is revolting. This night is fearfully long. If the poor sufferer could only sleep but she lies there with her eyes open. I pass constantly the space of half an hour motionless by her bedside, and then I slip off to the sheet of paper and write a few words, and then back again to her. In this way it has come to four o'clock. I have just heard the four strokes pealing from all the clock towers. It strikes one as so cold, so unfeeling, that time is striding on steadily and unerringly through all eternity, while at this very moment, for one warmly loved being, time must stop for all eternity. But how much the colder, the more unfeeling, the universe seems to our pain. By so much the more longingly do we fly back to another human heart 
which we believe, is beating in unison with our feelings. And therefore, it is at this white sheet of paper, which the physician left lying on the table when he wrote his prescription, attracted me, and therefore it is that I send you this letter. Seven o'clock. It is over. Farewell, my dear boy. Those were her last words. Then she closed her eyes and slept. Sleep soundly, my dear mother. In tears I kiss your dear hands. Yours in deadly sorrow. Friedrich Tilling. I still keep this letter. How frayed and discolored the sheet looks now. It is not only the 25 years that have elapsed which caused this decay, but also the tears and kisses which I covered the beloved writing in deadly sorrow. Yes, but shouting for joy was what I also felt when I read it. Though there was no word of love in it, yet no letter could give plainer proof that the writer loved the recipient and no one else that at such a moment, at the deathbed of his mother, he longed to pour out his grief into the heart, not of the princess, but into mine, must surely stifle every jealous doubt. I sent on the same day a funeral wreath of a hundred large white camellias with a single half-blown red rose in it. Would he understand that the pale, scentless flowers belonged to the departed as a symbol of mourning, and the little rose to himself. End of section 15.